Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Lawyer and writer Branavan Nanalingam is the author of the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards shortlisted Spriggs, a searing interrogation of sexual assault and masculinity. He argues that current cultural norms about being male come at others' expense and men must urgently find a new approach. He puts his case. We hope you enjoy it. Inga mana, inga reo, inga iwi, tēnā koutou, nau mai, hare mai, piki mai. Kia koutou te iwi o Ngāti Whātua, kei te mihi, kei te mihi, kei te mihi. Ko Christine O'Brien tōku ingoa, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome. My name's Christine O'Brien and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this session of Speaker's Corner, Being Male. Firstly, some housekeeping. I hope that everyone's either scanned in or will scan in on the way out or makes a note that you've been here, just in case. Um, Please feel comfortable wearing a face mask if you're not feeling very well. And if you continue to feel unwell or it gets worse, feel free to leave. Um, Audience will be very understanding in a situation like that. Please double check that phones are on silent. The festival's very happy for you to uh, use your social media to the fullest extent to say what a great time you're having and how wonderful our writers are, but please do it with some consideration for your neighbours. And the other thing is that Speaker's Corner has to run strictly to time. We have four sessions and it's a quick changeover between sessions. So the format is that there'll be a 20 to 25 minute provocation around a particular idea, and then the floor will be open for 10 minutes and questions and challenges from the audience uh, are accepted in that time. And at that point, I'll invite members who want to speak to come and queue around the back of the pillar at the standing mic just over here. Okay. Without further ado, my great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, uh, Branavan Ganalingam. Bran is a writer, novelist, reviewer and a lawyer based in Wellington. He is the author of six novels published by Collective Lawrence and Gibson and his work has appeared in the spin-off, Pantograph Punch, New Zealand Listener and other other forums. His newest novel, Spricks, and this is the second of his novels to be shortlisted in the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards, deals with a sexual assault at a teenage party after a high school rugby game and the traumatic consequences that flow from that event. A searing interrogation of masculinity, violence and racism, it has been described as an unflinching novel which forces us to reckon with uncomfortable truths about power and privilege in Aotearoa New Zealand. Brand now argues that our current cultural norms for being male come at the expense of others and that men must urgently find a new approach. Please welcome Brand. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I, I should warn you, I'm currently losing my voice, so hopefully it, uh, hopefully it holds, uh, holds for the, the talk. Um, I should also say that, um, uh, that this talk deals with violence, sexual violence, so just want to give a heads up uh, that that's going to be talked about today. <clears throat> it wasn't the first time I'd drunk any alcohol. That happened when I was 13 at a sleepover at a friend's house. His dad got us all a can of export gold each, 
and I drank it back, not sure about the bitterness of the taste. Well, technically I sipped it because that didn't go down easily. I remember thinking, do people pretend to like this stuff? I don't remember the effect, but I also don't remember having a second one. But I wasn't unfamiliar with it. I remember the pungent smell of stale beer cans dribbling out lukewarm leftovers onto our feet as we'd sort out the empties from my dad's work after his Friday night drinks. I was a kid and we were sorting out aluminium to send down to TY Point, or so the advertising went, or so the free labour was justified. At tumble weddings at a certain point in the night, my dad and the other men would sneak off while the boys found a corridor to play cricket in. When the men returned, their eyes would be glazed and their voices a few notches louder. But this was the first teenage party I'd been to. I was 15. In Spriggs, uh, I talked about learning to master half-truths, revealing just enough that you weren't lying, but not enough that you revealed exactly what was going on. My parents were fairly naive, not having grown up in New Zealand. The codes and expectations of teenagers weren't clear to them. Uh, on top of that, I was a particularly well-behaved kid. My marks were top-notch, and they sat in prize-giving with the expectation rather than boredom. A friend's dad picked me up for, for a, quote, sleepover, end quote, at another friend's house. That house was a lifestyle block out in a semi-rural valley. I had a 20 on me. My friend's dad swung by the off-license at the Nainai Hotel, picked each of us up a half dozen. I hadn't held that much beer, full beer in my hand at once. I pretended I knew what I was doing. It was an after-party of sorts. I was in year 11, but it was a party that the cool kids from year 11 and years 12 and 13 were at. And I was not a cool kid. I was popular, but I, and I was fortunate enough that I didn't get bullied, unlike some of the other kids at school. The bullies were jocks or jocks adjacent. The type of guys who'd beat up the new kids as soon as they got off the bus, and no one would do a thing. The kids who'd punch someone they assumed was gay, and then get off scot-free because they were first 15. They'd punch the kids who had no power in the schooling system, the ones who didn't play sport or otherwise need to be protected for school stats. It was the middle of winter where the darkness felt that much more heavy. The rural location was frosty and unearthly still. There were no street lights or sense of neighbours popping over for a chat or a recce. We were dropped off in a paddock with a wool shed with its floodlights and hay bales collected up for the summer. I remember opening that first beer. It was ice cold, which masked some of the bitterness. It didn't go down any easier from that first time. The cool kids from year 12 were sitting around a brazier, taking turns to poke it, with no real enthusiasm. At the end of the night, one of the guys apparently put his hand into it as a deer and had to get checked at hospital for his burns. I wasn't close with many people at the party. I was good mates with the host, but he had 100 more people uh, than he was expecting on his hands. My close group of friends were the nerds, mostly because we actually studied for tests and took the DARE program seriously. But none of my close mates were at the party, except for one mate who disappeared when he went on a solo mission to tip over cows. He seemed to believe cows sleep standing up and could be tipped over. We were city folk. I also played sport to a high level, so knew many of the jocks. I had grudging respect from them because of that, but not to the point that I'd go round to their houses to hang out or even to talk to them at school. But that first beer helped open me up. I like being around people, but I'm also someone who's comfortable not saying anything in a group environment. Words, slurry words, soon started spilling out of me. Before long, I was drunk, very drunk. I don't know how much I drank, whether it was a few or just the six, or people topped me up because they realised I hadn't drunk much before and it was fun to get someone blotted. 
I was a skinny wretch and I had no idea how to say no and I was a very fit runner and I was utterly inexperienced with alcohol. So, before long, I was throwing up by the edge of the woodshed, bullshed. My friend who was hosting was dealing with other fires and I couldn't figure out where I was or what to do. I decided to find some warmth in the woolshed. I made my way to the corner, unrolled my sleeping bag and fell asleep on top of the hay bales. A group of guys from my year were hanging in the woolshed. They had control of the stereo and they were playing the same song over and over again. The bro hymn tribute by Pennywise. Skater punk being what the cool kids listen to. And as far as I can tell, all they still listen to. I would have been obvious, thinking I had some cover in the corner of that woolshed. Those guys found me easily enough. They thought to have some fun. First they poured drinks on me. In hindsight, it seems like a waste of alcohol, given most teenagers didn't really have that much access to it. Then they progressed to spitting on me. Another pissed on me. I heard them laughing as it all happened, high-pitched, laced with malice and mirth. I can still hear them laughing. My host friend came to my rescue, grabbed me while I vomited everywhere, and took me into the main house. I slept it off at his house, his parents the next day bemused at my state. They knew I'd drunk to excess, but they didn't know what else had happened. This was just before cell phones became something every kid had, or before digital cameras were a thing. So it was never recorded for posterity, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. I guess once upon a time, such incidences were quickly forgotten by all except those involved. But despite it not being recorded, everyone knew, except for my parents. I lied about why there was vomit on my clothes when they picked me up. I'm not sure they believed me, but then again, they may well have believed my weak excuse. I went to school the following morning, and I received a mock hero's welcome. I knew the perpetrators. They weren't my friends, but they weren't my enemies. As a kid who wasn't bullied, I didn't feel targeted. I was simply someone who presented himself as a target. It was opportunistic. It could have been any other kid who failed to hold their liquor. Or at least that was how I rationalised it. I had to rationalise it. I was going to continue seeing these guys every day. I also told myself it was my fault for not holding, the li- holding my liquor. I mean, some of those guys became good mates. A couple apologised years after the fact. I don't hold grudges, I'm too busy for those, but I figured I had no choice but to make the best of it. The following day, we were giving ourselves new email addresses because that's what we did in our history class. One of the guys who spat on me suggested I use the ironic name of brandtank at hotmail.com. I did, because I'd been humiliated enough and the path of least resistance was to limit the mockery. He's now a property developer. I ran for student council the following year and ran on a platform of fighting for students' rights as, quote, I was the kind of guy who wouldn't get pissed on, end quote. When I announced my slogan, the crowd laughed for literally one minute. I defeated Nationals MP for Hutt South in that student council election. <laughs> we achieved nothing in that council. <laughs> I told myself I was fine, and I think that I was, but I didn't drink for two years. I can't listen to Pennywise. I became suspicious of guys teaming up in that way. I don't think my experience was particularly unusual. I know of many guys who had awkward or feral things happen to them in high school or afterwards. I was the same age as the Taradale high school kids. A couple of years after my incident, when I was in year 13, at Taradale, a group of year 13s put deep heat on a broomstick and shoved it up the anus of a comatose boy. I'd like to think the guys at my school wouldn't have been that brutally violent, but that's also what they said about the Taradale boys. Good people can do awful things. This all sounds like a cautionary tale about alcohol and jocks, but I'm also conscious that the jocks at my school ended up doing stuff all. The first 15er who punched my friend became a non-entity. His Facebook feed now is simply photos of strangers that he'd decided to mock that day. 
One day, I saw, looking out the window from the train, that someone had climbed 20 metres and emblazoned his name on a billboard as someone who, quote, wears G-strings, end quote. It's a curious insult. I'm not sure what the graffiti meant, but it was in full view of the Hutt motorway for some time. You wouldn't go to those lengths unless you really hated the guy. He clearly had some enemies who wouldn't care about any repercussions from him like they once might have. Another one of the bullies has been largely forgotten by his high school mates, who otherwise still hang out with each other. Another non-school friend works with him and said he's an awful colleague, out to pick fights and throw his weight around the building site. But he's small fry now. He won't be scaring the kids he once terrified. Some of the cool kids in Year 12, the ones around the brazier, are now primarily known for being bullies within their own tiny circles, spousal abusers or picking fights with random strangers when they go to the pub. Their power and status in the school hierarchies are mere footnotes in the rest of our lives. You can see how they cling on to the past, these moments where they once were powerful, their conversations punctuated by remember whens, a bygone era for those who don't want or need to remember. But power has a way of mutating and changing. New social hierarchies form in the new institutions, whether it's the university or the various jobs or professions out there. I could see it in the music scenes where bands, the kids who were once bullied, took revenge on ex-girlfriends or unrequited loves by writing creepy songs about them. In film, where people with newfound power took advantage of the access they control. In university, my flatmate's ex, entire love life for a decade was sleeping with the students. Well, the jobs themselves, I don't need to work too hard to show places where bullying and sexism and racism were common, where there was journalists, law firms, parliament, spy agencies, a defence force, councils or professional rugby teams. There is a tendency for people to think that power comes from the top down, that is imposed such as through law or through government. However, power influences every single interaction that a person has on a daily basis. Power isn't necessarily that's something that's bad or destructive. It can be productive. It can create knowledge, but one way it can wit in which it can have consequences is the way power has the ability to define people, or just as importantly, refuse to define people, or let people define themselves to the point they don't get treated as a blood and guts human being. I think of the way I think of the ways in which certain people were not defined, uh, or not defined growing up. I think of the sex education classes we had in school. We didn't learn about consent or contraception or pleasure or your sexual partner. Instead, we learnt about wet dreams and body changes. That was it. Nothing we learned was of any use to a relationship or a mutually fulfilling one. In those circumstances, you wonder how a future sexual partner would be envisaged, or how the gaps get filled in. For those of you who have read Spriggs, the sex education class scene was almost word for word the sex education class scene of my youth. I remember hearing stories from many of the other boys' schools, of teachers having to leave after being harassed by the boys, teachers being groped, older teachers sleeping with students, a barrage of lewd or suggestive comments. And there are other areas. I think back to how much we learnt about the treaty. Not much. The half dozen of us who did history learnt about a small fraction of our disgraceful past, but the rest did not do a thing. And again, you wonder, does this lack of definition mean certain people do not get treated as human? The handful of Māori students were mostly bullied by many of the others at my school. Some who were Māori downplayed their whakapapa so that they were left alone. This stuff percolates up. People who don't know anything about history are now being spoken to by desperate politi political parties, cynically taking advantage of such ignorance to try to win votes. I think of the sporting field, the other side being treated as stereotypes, a lumpen mass to be defeated, 
not humans playing a sport together. Intimidate, win, triumph. Blood sports without the blood. A kid in my football team once gave away a foul. His dad, on the sideline, lost his temper and started swearing at the ref. The ref started swearing at the parent. The kid tried to break it all up by karate kicking the ref. <laughs> he was suspended, but left the school the following day for another one. None of the three parties in that incident recognised the other person as being, well, something. Anything. They were simply someone who had to be dominated. The philosopher Judith Butler talked about how things like the war on terror played out through a denial of the other side. That through power, on a daily, individual basis, the other side's body becomes not grievable. She specifically discussed the Lindy England case, where Iraqi men were stripped, tortured, and subjected to utter terror by American and British soldiers at Abu Ghraib. That years and years and years of presenting the Muslim world as another, as something to be feared, meant that the soldiers lost their humanity in responding to them. But it wasn't just Lindy England. It was a systematic and structural failing in the army. But England became the scapegoat. She, who was certainly not blameless, but a working-class woman who posed in front of the humiliated prisoners became the one everyone focused on, while the male soldiers and her bosses got away with it. You see it in movies like American Sniper, which became about the death count and how many Iraqis were killed. In other words, through power, drip, drip, dripping, on an everyday basis, you create the environment in which the killing of a whole group of people becomes justified because they aren't treated as something definable, as something grievable. It helps people turn a blind eye, and you can see it playing out right now in Palestine, in Xinjiang, in Tigray. I think of what the guys did to me frequently, not because I'm masochistic or because I'm traumatised or anything like that. I find it fascinating the way a prone body among the hay bales became an easy target. At that moment, my sense of being didn't matter. My body wasn't something of any concern for them. It simply became something to play with, to mock, to humiliate. It reminds me of the small ways in which that plays out, whether it is to women or to my queer and trans friends or to other ethnic groups. That's the socialisation I decry, the type that refuses to acknowledge the existence of someone else. I think of being in an airport just over 10 years ago when two of the century's grand narratives, the war on terror and Me Too, converged onto me. An airport security guard took me aside into a room and proceeded to sexually assault me. To him, I didn't matter one bit. My body, my sense of self were utterly irrelevant. The same narratives over and over and over again. I find the term toxic mas masculinity limiting. In some respects, it creates the idea that there's only one way of being male, of being a man, that domination, power, is the only way. But a person puts on many hats and many masks on a daily basis. At that party, I shifted from being a mild-mannered nerd to someone who was trying hard to keep up with the jocks, drink for drink. I obviously failed miserably. We drift along most days being chameleons, shifting our performances for whoever we're in front of, and learning how to adapt in each situation as we grow older. Most people, most of the time, are good people. It's only in those moments when we define ourselves by denying someone else that same right to define themselves that our power comes at the expense of someone else. Our sense of community is built up by a multitude of individual interactions. If many of those interactions are off, problematic, it becomes harder and harder to unwind. I think of those great Lego constructions that my daughter likes to make, where each building is made up slowly, piece by piece, small pieces fused with small pieces to make an edifice. To dismantle such a building also takes time, in which you have to focus on removing and reworking each piece. Recognising this is perhaps that elusive answer, shifting our thinking 
that whatever we do, each interaction, has to acknowledge everyone else's humanity. That we fit in not through domination, but through shared understanding and mutual respect. That it's something we all have to keep learning and being better at, but it's a surprisingly straightforward answer to a complex problem. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, if anyone has questions that they would like to ask, please come and queue up here around the back of the pillar. And just once again, um, please no kind of manifestos or very large statements of position. There'll be time to, to have that discussion outside after the session, but uh, just try and keep it relatively short. Thank you. Kia ora. Um, my question is, as a teacher, as a young person, as a role model, uh, we're all role models, what can we do? What can we role model? What conversations can we have to support the younger generations in breaking down this culture? Yeah. Um, I have a lot of um, faith in younger generations. I think they have a lot more knowledge and understanding than I ever did. Um, and uh, people of my generation did, and I suspect people uh, of older generations. Um, so people are a lot more aware, so I, I think encouraging that sort of care and kindness and that sort of behaviour um, will be very, very crucial. Um, also, it's if you work in an institution and the institution has rules which kind of play up um, bullying or uh, toxic masculinity or racism or anything like that, that's where the institutions have to kind of work at fixing that stuff up. But I think, um, as a teacher, focusing on those individual interactions and making sure people feel comfortable being who they are and being able to find themselves will be, in, uh, will be the, the way to start. Kia ora, I'm Sapna. Kia ora. Hi, um, shout out to all the South Asians over here because, you know, he's a star for us. <laughs> and it's really rare to have somebody like him, you know, like Branavan speaking. Um, my question is with regards to South Asian patriarchy and, you know, what you're talking, the toxic masculinity, is how would you, you know, your experience and your point of view, which is really, really important, how would that, it's a big question, but how, give me some idea, how where would that would translate into the patriarchy which exists within the diaspora over here? Uh, absolutely, and it's not, uh, I mean, I think one thing I want to emphasise is it's not just a, New Zealand Pakeha male conversation. This is something that needs to happen uh, right across the board, and it's definitely a, a massive issue within the South Asian community. We have um, a very patriarchal society, casteism, classism, these all kind of influence um, the way people get treated, and I think um, these are conversations that uh, South Asian men also need to be kind of having and thinking about. Um, and also, you can kind of see it playing out in, in parts of South Asia where these where uh, there's a kind of the ethno-nationalism, all the kind of problems are kind of feeding through here too. So uh, it's definitely conversations that we need to be focusing on too here. might jump in. Um, one of the conversations that we've been having is around um, sport, which is, of course, pervasive in many aspects of New Zealand life. And um, sport gets a very bad rap in the book uh, and is a springboard for much, for much of what happens. But you've said that you genuinely love sport. So I'm wondering if you could unpack a little bit more about, around that sort of dichotomy. Uh, 
I'm nothing if not a contradictory person, but um, I do love sport. I played sport. I enjoyed the camaraderie. I enjoyed the, um, the being outside and the kind of that side of, side of things of sport. Uh, and I also enjoy the kind of collective moment when you're watching a sporting event or uh, kind of enjoying sport in, in, that, in that way. But in high school, the power came to those who played sport. It came to those who were good at sport. Um, in our culture, uh, in, in mainstream cultures in New Zealand, again, power, power is held with sport. So it's kind of the way that culture percolates out from the sport itself is what I was kind of looking at. Sport itself is not necessarily... Um, the problem, it's the culture around it. Kia ora. Um, I have a potential follow-up from that or a book-specific question. Which would you prefer? I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, well, just based on that, kind of made me think about, um, you know, as someone who loves sport, then in what ways do you try and say, actively sort of counteract that sort of toxic masculinity culture and your watching and enjoyment of sport, you know, instead of taking like sort of a lads, lads, lads approach, like how do you sort of combat that? Um, I'm a very mild-mannered person, so I try not to, um, <laughs> I try not to do that, but, um, I'm, but I'm also conscious that, you know, you can kind of get yourself worked up and as part of the sporting culture of the lads, 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 yeah. uh, go boy, kind of that kind of yeah, get, ca get caught up in it. Get, yeah, get caught up in it, which I'm having to kind of constantly unwork. Because um, also I'm conscious that people learn certain ways of being and you can unlearn them. Um, mm. And it's a constant process of having to work through that, um, which is, I think, something that uh, people need to do. And uh, that's something that I still need to do in a lot of areas. Yeah, yeah. And so my other question was about the book, which thought was amazing. It was a like, brilliant read. Um, so you have like lots of different voices in the book. Who did you find the easiest to write from their perspective and who did you find the hardest? Given like the, one of the main characters like, is this Indian woman, but she's, yeah, she's also a woman. But, yeah. So wondered what that was like. Um, cause I, I wanted to write about a, a lot of characters because I wanted to look at structure and I wanted to look at the way the individual interactions build a, a structure. Um, so I, I felt like I had to have the amount of characters that I did. Um, the character I found the easiest to write, I think, was Clap, who was the deputy principal, because uh, I was really interested, and I kind of saw a lot of myself in his kind of impotence and his knowing how to, knowing that things were going badly and that he should be doing something, but being unable to counteract it because he was worried about losing his job or worried about other um, other factors. Um, and I, I, throughout all of my books, I've written about people who collude with power structures and collude with institutions. And so um, I found him the kind of character who's kind of most commonly in, in all my other books. Um, Priya was definitely the hardest. Um, uh, and that was primarily because I was writing from a 15-year-old girl's perspective and I'm a 37-year-old <laughs> man. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm conscious that uh, I could, could get it wrong. If I've got it wrong, then I just have to wear the criticism. That's just... Um, something that I thought and worked hard on, but I, I, I don't get to claim um, that voice uh, as mine necessarily. So, um, yeah, that was hard, uh, but uh, I hope I did it okay. Thank you. Um, thank you for your words. Um, I guess my question would be... Um, 
I'm thinking about conversations with male friends and um, difficult conversations where trying to sort of push against that culture that, you know, the culture that you describe is one that's similar to what I grew up with as well. Um, have you, could you speak to any successes or difficult, you know, how you handle some of those difficult conversations with friends when you're trying to push against that culture? Um, yeah, just maybe any advice for, you know, people in the audience who would want to do that because oftentimes cancel culture comes back as like, oh, well, you know, lighten up and loosen up and um, how to get sort of encourage friends to see beyond that. Yeah, it is really hard. Um, I think it has to happen slowly and has to happen through many different conversations. You can't, I don't think you would successfully be able to convince someone to change their mind by going hard and attacking them straight away. Um, some people might respond to it, um, but I'm also very lucky from when I was growing up and in my 20s, I had people who did take the time to talk through things, not necessarily to me, but it was um, uh, around me and so I could just shut up and listen. Um, and that was a really important part. But from, from your perspective, it becomes quite difficult when you're the kind of person uh, trying to like stop those kind of voices. Um, I suspect it's trying to teach listening. Uh, I think hearing other voices, hearing other stories is uh, an utterly crucial way of getting people to um, rethink what they know or what they grew up with. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I suspect it's going to be that slow process of challenging, not letting stuff slide, not letting um, uh, that behaviour go unchecked while also trying to figure out a way in which... And it's very complicated because you're also trying to maintain friendships, you're trying to kind of think you might be the best person to get through to them rather than someone else. Um, it, it's never going to be an easy black and white process, but it's something I think that we all have to kind of work on. and thank you for that. I was thinking of the perspective of a migrant parent. You want your children to integrate, and yet you don't want to protect them too much as well. Looking back, what should your parents have done that day? Should they have not let you go to the party? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, the guy who hosted the party became my groomsman when I got married, so he was a close friend, so it's not like... Um, you know, if I said I was going to stay at his place, they would have any reason to be concerned. And, um, yeah, I'd, I suspect one thing, perhaps I could have had a better sense of what it was like to go to teenage parties and be aware of alcohol and, and that those sort of things. Yeah, I'd, that's actually a really difficult question. Um, <laughs> um, I'm a migrant parent too. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is tough because also uh, as... Uh, as a parent now, you kind of, I, you go through those, and I'm sure every parent in this room would go through those exact same conversations of how much do we let them make mistakes, let your kids make mistakes, and how much do we kind of prevent all that stuff happening, and I don't think it's any, there's any clear answer. I learned a lot from my mistakes, so I guess some good came out of it. It obviously wasn't pleasant, it wasn't fun, um, but uh, it was all part of the process, I think, for me, learning how to be a teenager and, and fit in a bit better, but yeah, it certainly wasn't something I would recommend at the process. Hello. I loved Spriggs as well. I thought it was brilliant. Um, Thank you. I found the Board of Trustees scenes so gutting, and I wondered what informed that for you. Um, I 
was really interested in the way power colludes and tries to protect re institutions and reputations far more so than caring about the victim. And um, the board was the kind of power structure in, in that school, and I wanted to um, for that to be the most kind of visceral reaction when people read the book of, of just sheer um, indifference to what had happened and sheer um, callousness. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, um, it kind of matched a lot of the kind of power structure that I had in a previous book of mine, um, Briefcase, Two Pies in a Penthouse. So I was kind of interested in, um, I'm, I am interested in the way people duck for cover and uh, let things happen because they don't want to take any personal responsibility for it. And um, and you kind of see that play out time and time again whenever there's a kind of, um, in the media, whenever kind of a sexual assault or um, those sort of stories come out, then you see everyone kind of ducking for cover and saying it's not us, it's nothing to do with us, this is not who we are, um, while not giving a single um, thought about the victim. Um, and so that was kind of how uh, I envisaged the, those scenes. Obviously, I thought Spriggs was awesome as well. Um, I just want to talk about, you know, your question about um, having those difficult conversations. My husband is 60, so from, a, you know, an older generation. Um, he has been a cyclist since he was 11, and currently he rides with a group of riders, both male and female, um, and they've established themselves as a club in Wellington. And what they decided to do was to set some values for that club as well as, you know, the basic safety rules. They said, what do we believe in and what are we, what behaviours are we going to accept and not accept in this club? And they basically wrote a little manifesto for it. Um, and this club is from, you know, he's probably one of the older ones and so right down to 20s. Um, and so one of it was, it's like no homophobia, no racism, no sexism, no denigrating anybody else. You know, we support and we wait for anybody who's lagging behind. Um, and that's all very easy to do, but you have to enforce it as well. Yeah. It does help that he is the son of Glaswegian immigrants and he can, um, he's not backward about coming forward, but you can do it. And it, when doing it in a group, if you have this opportunity to do something from scratch, to say, well, this is how, how do we behave? Um, and then call people out for not doing it because you're not, it's not just you calling it out, it's the whole group calling them out. So that's one success story there. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one thing that I'm conscious of is it's not enough to be not racist. You have to try to be anti-racist. You have to kind of actively focus on challenging the power structures. Um, but I'm also... Maybe I'm a little forgiving of older generations who might not necessarily be aware of how to talk uh, in certain spaces or might say the wrong thing, because I did the same. I said the wrong thing. I was ignorant in a lot of areas. I still am ignorant in a lot of areas, and um, I'm conscious that I still have to keep learning, and I will never get it right all the time. Uh, and so I, when I kind of interact with people, I kind of also have to keep that in mind that often it's coming not necessarily from a bad place, but it's just coming from an ignorant place or a place that people might not necessarily know what, um, because they might not be exposed to, um, to that sort of um, discourse or might have no, no sense of the consequences. And, and so kind of keeping that in mind has also been um, one factor that I also try to uh, keep, uh, try to focus on. 
Well, we've come to the end of question time. Thank you so much um, for sharing with us in such an honest way to open the topic up for discussion today. If anyone wants to talk to Brand further, he will be out at the signing table um, outside and up the stairs. The book is also for sale at the table on the mezzanine, and I'm sure he'll be very happy to sign copies, or if you have a copy with you. So without further ado, as we say, and it's very trite, but thank, please, please join me in thanking Brandon <laughs>